Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Daily Objective. And we're going to be talking about a guy who is uh, taking the internet by storm right now. Uh, just about everybody is talking about him. I'm talking about Andrew Tate, former boxer, entrepreneur, controversial um, man of. Uh, yeah, I don't really have an end to that sentence. He's he's definitely a man uh, with an opinion. So we're going to talk about not so much about uh, his history and his career, which you can look up elsewhere, but mostly the ideas that he espouses and what it says about the culture and the world we live in, the way that people embrace or reject what he's saying. Um, so uh, yeah, leave a like and hit that join button. And of course, super chat your thoughts and opinions. Um, first and foremost, it's not clear to me uh, how much of a character he's actually playing. That's kind of one aspect of this that uh, I need to say right off the bat. I think he would probably say it's not a character. This isn't exactly what I believe, but at times it seems hyperbolic. At times he's kind of uh, he's screaming when he talks and kind of like snickering. It's it's not 100 percent clear if he's sort of uh, exaggerating his actual views at times. So I think that's that's something we've seen um, in the past. It's kind of an ongoing phenomenon of the time we lives in. We live in some would say uh, our last president was sort of semi in character a lot of the time. And it was not always clear when he was being serious, if ever. Um, but. Oftentimes, it is kind of clear what Andrew Tate does believe because um, he, you know, he tells us. So, um, as with many of these sort of uh, kind of materialistic type of people, the people who emphasize material values and and these men who brag about all the attractive women they're able to to get. There's definitely some positive we can abstract from there, and that's a tough pill for some people. Um, to swallow. Other times, um, people have a hard time accepting that there's anything uh, bad about him, right? Because they worship the ground he walks on. And we get that we had a similar thing with uh, Kevin Samuels when I did a couple episodes about him here on the show. Of course, some people, they don't want to hear anything positive about the message that Kevin was sending. Other people, they think everything Kevin Samuels says is true. Now, um, Andrew Tate makes Kevin Samuels look very benign in many cases, very reasonable and calm. So Andrew Tate is this larger than life, hyperbolic, always, always on, always crank to 11 and makes Kevin Samuels seem uh, sort of uh, um, sort of laid back by comparison. But anyway, here's something positive that Andrew Tate has said. He, he focuses on hard work, you know, entrepreneurship, um, making your own luck, so to speak. So he said something like, Money amplifies, he says, money amplifies who you are. So when you make money, if you are already a hardworking person with a great work ethic, if you're already a driven person, then making money only drives you more and makes you clean up your act and sort of fine tune your operation and improve yourself even more. That's how some people handle making money. Other people, they were always uh, cutting corners in the first place. They were always, they always had a cynical sort of, um, you know, um, yeah, cynical really says it all. People who who they always thought life is about luck and they never really wanted to work very hard and they, ne they never wanted to hold themselves to a very high standard. If some of those people come across money, let's say they earn it by accident or like when they earn it or they, they stumble into it somehow. Uh, let's say they bought a, a crypto coin that ends up being worth $100 million. Just for example, they, they didn't do very much um, to earn the money that they now have you sort of see their character um, 
being magnified by that. Now they're even more cynical. They're even more um, sneering and untrusting and just, just generally um, corner cutting and cynical. Again, that says it all. So I like that. So there's an example of something Andrew Tate has said that I think is, is true. Money, when you make a lot of money, it tends to amplify who you are, good or bad. So there is an example of something good said by Andrew Tate. And I think if you watch him and you watch him talk about business and hard work, you might abstract many other positive things that he says. All right. Now, some of the negative things he says, first and foremost, anytime you see somebody being super, super arrogant, just he's got all the answers. He's not curious at all. No curiosity, no thinking out loud. His answer is never just, oh, I don't know. I need to, I need to think more about that. Or, or let me get back to you. Like, uh, you, you tell me what you think. You never get that from him. Um, so if you look at the namesake of this channel, Ayn Rand, obviously she's been accused of, you know, thinking she knows everything. I think, uh, when you act, the more you look into who she was and the more you, uh, study her writing and her work intently, the more you see she demonstrates how she arrives at her conclusions. And when she was taking questions from people, she often, or in some cases would say, I don't know. And sometimes she would think out loud. Someone would ask her like, is there an objective standard to human beauty? And it, this is a really interesting moment. She starts answering, kind of thinking out loud. She, she, she kind of realized while answering the question, she said, well, isn't it true that different races of people have, there's different features that, that look good to those people. She gave, you know, black, white, and Asian as the three examples. There are different features that make those three different groups look good. Um, so that, that was just kind of something she came up with on the spot. It's an example of somebody who is actually thoughtful and doesn't want to be believed just for the sake of, you know, being believed and not looking for power and not, and not, not gaining her self-esteem from other people's validation. So when it comes to Andrew Tate, you get this arrogance. He knows everything. Doesn't mean he's always wrong. Maybe he's right a lot of the time, but uh, be suspicious. Do not hold, do not put him on a pedestal. Do not think this man is going to, um, you know, lead you to the promised land. I would definitely take what he says with a grain of salt and uh, question everything. He really, really emphasizes status. To him, status or status, as he pronounces it, status is everything. He, I've heard, and that doesn't mean he's always consistent, by the way, with, as you, with most people that are out there uh, running their mouth, you, you get contradictions. So um, he does talk about relationships and meaning and all of that, but then he asks like, status is everything, right? Status is everything. He says, why do you want an, an, uh, a beautiful woman? Because you get to be seen with her, right? It's other people's opinions. Why do you want a, a great car, an expensive car? You don't care about a car. It's that you get to, it's your status. You get to be seen in it. And I mean, God, is that wrong? Boy, are those two examples bad. In my opinion, definitely a lot of you would probably agree. First of all, um, the company and the touch of a beautiful woman is a valuable thing to you, right? It, whether or not anyone else sees you, I think is secondary at best. Um, now, of course, some people do want to be seen. Or maybe a lot of people want that kind of secondhanded um, quote value. But to say that the only reason anybody wants a beautiful woman in his life is status, I think is uh, revealing. Another, uh, the other example is a car. Now this is a, a car is much less of a uh, um, important thing in your life than a woman, I would say, although uh, a nice car, uh, an expensive, smooth, fast car. <sighs> Ladies, I gotta be honest, those cars uh, do, give, do give you a run for your money. I'm being a little bit uh, tongue in cheek. 
Um, cars are cool. Cars are fun to drive. Cars are, they're awesome. So again, to act like it's all about other people's opinions. It's second-handed, and I don't think that's how all people are. I don't think it's how any people needed to be. Maybe some people are that way. And why people are second-handed, um, you know, this is the type of perspective you'll get often on this channel and on other objectivist sort of think tanks. It's philosophy. It's the role of philosophy. You know, the ethics of altruism, the ethics that is prevalent through history and today that says the moral ideal is to sacrifice. The moral ideal is to put others above yourself. And if it's true that other people have primacy, then uh, their opinion really matters. Their opinion of you is everything. So your subconscious, I would offer, is doing these calculations and you don't even realize. You don't even realize. So why do I care so much what these other people think? Well, your moral purpose in life, because of the code you've accepted, says that these people are above you. Um, you can see why uh, philosophy matters. Now, Andrew Tate is, like most people, not a career philosopher and doesn't even realize how philosophy has shaped his worldview. He's very materialistic. He has this very zero-sum view of the world, as do many people. He thinks everything's about, you know, the conqueror versus the conquered. Everything's a competition. And that's just the way that he sees it. He talks about all oh, the reason that ancient Rome, the Romans, you know, won is because they weren't just sitting around thinking all the time. They were, you know, beating up on, on and, and conquering others and taking their women and taking their their booty and taking their uh, their gold. But in fact, I would offer you is uh, the, the reason that Rome were successful and the reason that most that all successful societies such as the United States today are relatively successful is because of the extent to which they have embraced science, embraced the intellect, embraced reason, embraced individual rights, which includes trade, free trade, elements of capitalism. These are the things that make individuals um, you know, empowered and make a culture, a, a, a nation, a, a society, a country thrive and become actually very strong. So you know, you don't see too many um, barbaric countries winning against free countries. I mean, you look at, you know, Israel, for example, small country, the people living in it are probably per capita physically smaller than, you know, the, the Arab nations around them. And um, somehow these these, you know, this small country full of uh, hyper intellectual people have managed to tame the hundred million people surrounding their borders that would like to wipe them off the map. And the reason for that I would offer you is because, again, they've embraced science, they've embraced um, you know, trade, they've embraced uh, rule of law as opposed to rule of men. It is largely a free society in that the law comes before any, any one person's whim. It's not, per not perfect, nor is any country today, but relatively, Israel is an example of how uh, a, an intellectual, intellectual country, like a country where the intellect is respected and allowed to be, becomes actually militarily stronger. And before someone says, oh, it's the U.S. that sends them uh, money. Uh, the U.S. sends the, literally the same amount of money to Egypt. How's Egypt doing? America arms the Palestinians, literally. Israel and America both send money to the Palestinians. How are the Palestinians doing? How are all the other countries in the Middle East doing? Is it possible, perhaps, that what I'm saying is correct and there's more to life than how much money somebody gives you? There's more to life than money? Maybe money is the consequence of using your intellect and producing rather than this finite thing that we're all scrambling to, to get a, a little bit of. 
that certainly that latter uh, perspective is what I think Andrew Tate holds to him. Everything's zero sum, right? There's a fixed amount of wealth in the world. There's a fixed amount of beautiful women for everybody to fight over. Um, and he, he definitely sees the world that way. Uh, he talks about the matrix to him. He love, he really loves that movie. I got to tell you, sometimes I wonder if the people who made the matrix movie sometimes look at the internet and just kind of wonder what they've done. Like, what have I created? You know, like did the captain of the Titanic cry? I've asked, um, like, uh, did, did, did Rush Limbaugh look at the U S Capitol on January 6th? and and just sort of a reflect on the monster he's created that's kind of what i've wondered i mean i'm being you know a bit of a sidetrack here and being a little bit uh joking around here but yeah what is with the matrix and the, these people they love the matrix so what does the matrix basically say everything you think you know isn't really true but you know the actual truth you can find out if you take the red pill and andrew tate loves being quote red pilled um and he says, in this matrix, they, they, quote unquote, they've turned us against each other, right? Men versus women, blacks versus whites, Democrats versus Republicans. They're turning us against each other so that we can fight amongst ourselves and they can remain in power. And first of all, is that, is that, is that what they are doing, Andrew? Are they turning men against women and vice versa? Is that what, don't you hate it, what they are doing? Give me a break, first of all. Um, but also... The, the, these this perspective of like that there's this elite out there which andrew tate by the way he can't he he desperately wants to be a part of he wants to be the one who is who has power over others he wants to be the one who people are afraid to challenge um he wants to be this this you know puppet master it's evident by the things that he says and his behavior um but uh, this this whole worldview, it drops the context of the fact that every one of us human beings with a functioning brain uh, has the, has an intellect, is able to think independently, is able to look at the world first handedly, make choices, make decisions, choose values and follow a certain philosophical course. And this is why philosophy has such enormous consequences. So um, I don't think Tate even realizes the way he's been manipulated or the way he's been influenced by philosophers through the ages. The fact that he thinks we live in a matrix is itself a, the consequence of philosophy. The fact that he, on one hand, he talks about how the socialists are everywhere and they're going to destroy us and they're, they're manipulating us. On the other hand, he has this very Marxist influence worldview where like everyone's part of a group and the groups are all at each other's throats and, and we, can't, uh, you know, we can't possibly see eye to eye. I think uh, he doesn't quite realize the way that philosophy has shaped him and shaped the world around us. Also, the fact that he he kind of he's kind of like the Gail Winand. If you read The Fountainhead, he sort of has a uh, Gail Winand will definitely come to mind if you um, if you go down an Andrew Tate rabbit hole and consume a lot of his content. But I don't know if he has any of of, of Gail Winand Winand's redeeming qualities that uh, um, I'm sort of rhetorically asking with the implication that he probably doesn't, but maybe a little bit. I mean, maybe he does have some redeeming qualities. I obviously don't know him all that well. Um, he talks about um, religion and tradition, right? So this is something you get. And again, here's an example of how philosophy impacts us and, and shapes the way uh, we tend to look at things and, and operate. He's basically getting um, his worldview from the quote biological 
or bi biological determinists or the evolutionary psychologists, like everything is, you know, sort of embedded in us because, you know, here's what basically here's how I would sum up a, a lot of this uh, stuff that we, we hear from these types of thinkers here, like whatever it was that brought us to the level of cavemen, kind of what it took to survive as cavemen is basically still who we are. So the fact that, you know, we need to be uh, very rough and violent in order to win um, is the is because that's what cavemen needed to be. Um, so Andrew Tate, he'll talk about how, you know, a woman, she wants a man who's, you know, ready to kill um, when the time comes. And it's kind of like, a, I think what, what Ayn Rand would call like a lifeboat situation to base so much of your life around emergencies. Um, everything is about um, like what to do when there's a fire, what to do when someone breaks into the house, what to do when someone attacks you in the street. Of course, those things matter. And I, there's definitely a lot we can learn about men and women by the different roles that they tend to play when someone attacks them in the street or the roles that they can play, the role that he can play, the man, and how a woman sees him as the result of that. I'm not downplaying all that. I think there's somewhat of a kernel of truth in a lot of what people like Andrew Tate say. But that we can infer everything we know about men and women from such emergencies, I think suggests that Andrew Tate and others like him, the people impacting him, they see all of human existence and intercourse as derivative from, you know, how cavemen functions, just like how life is in the wilderness. But um, what we can actually learn by observation, so I'm not just being philosophical, you know, up in the clouds in my head, I'm actually saying, look around you, see the extent that human beings have flourished, the extent that human beings have been able to live not in violence, the extent to which the money in your pocket is not being taken away from you and your other values are not being taken by force, the extent to which you're not being attacked physically is the extent to which we have embraced reason as our tool of survival individually. And that's something that Ayn Rand magnifies, emphasizes, and really brings to light. Um, the light there is not merely metaphorical, or maybe it is metaphorical. Um, we're able to uh, survive and thrive because we use reason. So if life was all about physicality, if life was all just about brute force, then of course the physical, physically strongest uh, humans would have outlived, you know, conquered everybody else. And to the extent people could have formed nations, which I'm not sure they could without using their intellect, the physically, I guess, most numerous country would just swallow the others. And, but I mean, without the intellect, people just devolve into the state of sub animals, really, because even animals, they, they're sort of, a, they have evolved to survive in a certain environment. Animals can sort of just go from association to association, from stimulus to stimulus and survive. But human beings, we don't even have that. We've got the, the intellect, we've got our mind or nothing. Think or die is basically how I would describe the state of human beings. But it's taking us so long to really understand that through history. It's, it's taken so long uh, for, you know, for philosophers to come about and really uh, point this out and then for others to understand it and for uh, the, sort of the field of philosophy to really embrace this thing that is just so clear once you see it. You can't unsee it. Uh, reason is man's tool of survival. So yeah, just as all the animals and all the life forms have their method of survival, the human method of survival is reason on an individualistic level and then a, a 
civilization, a political environment in which the individual can follow his rational judgment. Uh, from there we get, you know, liberty, free speech, free, uh, you know, property rights. We're able to trade with one another. And, you know, we get what, what can be, I guess, conceptualized as capitalism. But capitalism, I think, reflects the individuals in the system uh, being left to follow their own rational judgment because, again, reasoning, reason is man's tool of survival. Um, with this being the case, how reason is man's tool of survival, and I'm using the, I'm using the word man here um, out of habit, but of course, man or woman, any, any uh, functioning adult with a functioning brain, reason is our tool of survival. And so how, do we, how can we then look at, um, you know, at relationships? How do we look at um, just generally, like what makes a man masculine? Is it necessarily that he can lift? Is it necessarily that he's ready to tear somebody apart? and risk his life physically to protect a woman. I think those things mean something that we can definitely learn a little bit from them or maybe a lot, but, but if it, again, if it's true that reason is man's tool of survival, then maybe a, a human hero, a human, um, a masculine human is not necessarily going to be so physically, um, uh, domineering if that's the word, I, you know, and you look at Ayn Rand's heroes, they're lean, they're, um, they're, they, they're radiant, right? They're like, they're physically, you, their physicality reflects their mental health, like their mental um, attuneness with reality. Their, their mind is um, focused on reality and production and pursuing the good life. And their body kind of reflects that, but they're not necessarily the most ripped people on earth. Because again, if life was all for you, if human life was all about just physical brute strength, then the the barbarians would be um, the winners of history. And I don't even know what winning looks like in such an existence, because the barbarians themselves would be stumbling around and failing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot about um, human relationships in romance, human relationships in general, masculinity and femininity. There's a lot of questions that are difficult to answer, even when you embrace a philosophy like objectivism. I still don't have answers to a lot of these questions. So I'm not here saying Andrew Tate is wrong and I have all the answers. I'm saying um, I think Andrew Tate is misguided and I think I hope I've articulated uh, in what ways I think he's misguided. But I get, but like, yeah, what, what should a proper relationship look like by should, I mean, like, what is the type of relationship between a man and a woman that makes them both happy and fulfilled and enable them to sort of coexist in a happy and harmonious way in the modern world, in a world where women do have political equality and should, uh, in a world where men are not, um, you know, living by their brute strength, but rather, but rather using their intellect but where men are trading with one another. So this whole zero sum view of the world, it might've been true in the wilderness, but we don't live in the wilderness. We, by trade, by intellectual activity, we've been able to adjust the, the wilderness to suit our needs. And now we deal with each other by trade and should, and that is the way that human beings thrive. So in a world where men deal with each other by trade, by persuasion, um, what does masculinity then look like? Is masculinity still a, excuse my language, a dick swinging contest like Andrew Tate suggests? or is, um, I don't know, maybe independence, integrity, a man's uh, commitment to his values, to his convictions, a man who is truly selfish in the truest sense of the term. And we, we can see that in art, you know, of course, in Ayn Rand's novels, and maybe in some of the romantic writers, we can see it as well. Maybe that's real masculinity. 
Um, and I think Andrew Tate would probably agree with a lot of the positive things I've said. It's saying like a man who's committed to his values is masculine. I think Andrew Tate would agree with that, but also he lives with this premise of, you know, brute strength and zero sum and everything's a competition. And I don't, I don't think everything is a competition, not among rational men. Um, so um, the final thing I'll just mention is according to Andrew Tate, like there's the, like it's like it should be OK for men to cheat, basically, or for men to have multiple partners, but not for women. And he, he says, you know, it, it's gross. If a woman cheats, that's like disgusting. But if a man cheats in a relationship, it, it shouldn't even be a deal breaker. You know, it should just kind of be taken as that's a man being a man. I mean, look, as a man, um, you know, I, I'd say, I'll say let's not rule it out. But I'm being, you know, obviously I'm kind of joking. <laughs> but well, does that make any sense? So like uh, a man can cheat and and that's and but a woman can't. I mean, is, is that going to work? Is, that, is a relationship going to function that way? Are either is either party going to be happy? But again, there's a lot about relationships, a lot of questions I can't quite answer as the world becomes modernized, as liberty, capitalism brings about all these opportunities. There's a lot I don't know about what makes a marriage work long-term. I don't know. Um, we, we did an episode some months, uh, maybe a couple of years ago now, me and Nikos about, um, about like life extension. What was it? Like the, if technology makes us live indefinitely, basically, like what would, a, what would a marriage even look like? What would a marriage look like in that, in that reality, right? Like you can, if you're living for thousands of years, you can get married and be in love, but eventually just, you know, you split up and then time passes and time passes and time passes. And the day can come where you don't even remember the person you married. That's how much time can pass. You could literally run into the person you used to be married to and not remember having known them a thousand years prior. Right. So it's very difficult to even um, to look at a lot of these issues, relationships, et cetera, in a world in which technology and science is bringing about um, a, a new situation that we're just simply not used to. Um, so with that being said, let's, um, read some super chats. Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you, Roland. He says, I only super chat for the status. <laughs> well, I forgot to mention any of you who want a uh, state to achieve uh, status, go ahead and, um, super chat. Um, Marilyn then says, uh, asks Rush Limbaugh was dead by January 6th. Wasn't he? No, he wasn't. Uh, he died later that year, maybe even a month or two later, but the day after January 6th, 2021, Rush Limbaugh got on his radio show and he said something along the lines of, and you could look up the exact transcript. He says, some people think that, you know, the, the political establishment shouldn't be upset. It should be respected. Some people think that you shouldn't uh, break the law, um, et cetera, et cetera. In, in, in some way, he alluded to what had taken place in, on January 6th. And since many people say that this should not be done, and then his concluding remark said, I'm certainly glad that the founding fathers of America didn't think so. If, uh, if what I just said uh, was a little bit confusing. He basically, he compared the January 6th people to the founding fathers of America in as in, in, in so far as they both would not, you know, be complacent in the face of whatever it was. Uh, Marilyn with $2 says, would you call Tate a social metaphysician? 
So what is a social, like a social metaphysics, I guess would be where you like you, you learn. Yeah, I can't, I can't go. I've heard the objectivists use this phrase. I think it's, it's, I'm guessing, I think it came from Ayn Rand, right? Uh, I, I would assume it does. Uh, social metaphysics is it's in one of her essays where like you replace other people's opinions and other people's choices for the, the, um, the not the given, right? So there's like the, there's the metaphysically given versus the man-made, but when you put the man-made as the primary, like when you treat the man-made as though it's a metaphysically given, then you're basically, you're turning other people's choices and their thoughts and opinions into your kind of reference point for reality. I, I hope that it does the concept justice. Now, is Tate that? I mean, it certainly seems like he is. There is, I think, um, a lot we can learn by observing people. I think Aristotle, from what I understand, he did a lot of that. He looked at the way people functioned and and lived and kind of um, he kind of uh, he derived certain uh, opinions about ethics, let's say, or about a proper political system. And, and look up my recent conversation with Greg Salmieri about Aristotle to get a, a clearer explanation of what Aristotle did. But I think there is a lot we can learn by looking at people, right? We can't just uh, completely forget everything we've ever witnessed with people and say, what would the ideal man and the ideal woman be like? And how would they treat each other? I think we can learn a lot by our actual relationships in reality. What do we like? What do we look for? What, what do we find attractive, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot we can learn, but we need to try to control for the role of philosophy, for the impact, the influence of ethical beliefs and, and, uh, and epistemological beliefs and stuff like that. Thank you for joining us today. Um, it's good to be here. I guess uh, with that, we have no more super chats and no more questions. So I will go ahead and read the announcements at 7 p.m. UK time today, which is uh, you know 30 minutes from now. The Fountainhead Book Club with Lisa Van Dam and Shoshana Milgram will um, be will be for members only. It will also be live streamed for YouTube members. So hit that join button now for the opportunity um, to study The Fountainhead, a magnificent book with, uh, I mean, frankly, two of the best uh, people you could hope to um, study that book with. And I, they're both women. How about that, Andrew Tate? Can, can, you, can you contemplate a book written by a woman and whose two best uh, teachers of said book are women? Don't tell Andrew Tate. Um, and we did talk about The Fountainhead earlier when I referenced uh, Gail Winand. So you might want to uh, study Gail Winand a little bit and see if you do see the parallels with Mr. Tate. All right, uh, we've touched upon a little bit of what it is that makes Andrew Tate um, relevant. There's a lot about him you can learn if you go down the rabbit hole. And hey, maybe some of you will become fans. Um, you can be, quote, radicalized. Um, I am not, you know, I'm not one of these people that says, you know, stay away from him. He's going to radicalize you. But because when, when you have the truth, when you have a good philosophy, you're serene, right? You're happy to let, let the marketplace of ideas run its course. So get out there, decide who you agree with. Do you agree with me? I would just say, uh, you know, refer back to this episode periodically and just hear the points I'm making and just uh, see if, uh, ask yourself, where else do you hear anybody challenging the Andrew Tates of the world this way? And of course, uh, as, as, as articulate and wonderful as I am, I think uh, it should be clear, I'm not the originator of this philosophy. Look to the name of the channel 
to know whose it is. Think uh, whose it is, and of course, I'm only trying my best at articulating it. Enough with the filibuster. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow for the daily objective. And goodbye. <laughs>